0: This evening's readings are taken firstly from Matthew, chapter 5, verse 1 to 10, which can be found on page 968 in the Church Bible, and the second reading is from Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 9, which is on page 691. Matthew 5, verse 1 to 10. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 9. the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Uh,
1: We started last week looking at what is called the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, and we just began exploring what does it mean, what did Jesus taught teach that it meant to, to be someone who in your life began to follow Jesus, recognize that you needed Jesus, recognize that you needed God's forgiveness, Had come to Him. What does it look like when you begin to see that? And one of the interesting things I think we saw last week is that, that when a person comes to follow Jesus, Jesus doesn't give a a lot of, of good ideas, a lot of better ways of living. That's not what Jesus gives us in the Scriptures. But what he gives us is a radical, upside-down way of living. One that really turns all our assumptions, in a lot of ways, up on their head when we really begin to think about them. Uh, for instance, when you just look there in the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, probably the most a distilled, condensed version of what it means practically to live for Jesus, Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. That that when Jesus pointed out, he he sits down and he said, Look, the life I want to call you to, verse 37 to chapter 5, is that I don't just command you to keep all your legal contracts, but I want every word you say to be your bond. For that to be your bond. Or in verse uh, 28... He says, look, I don't command you not to just not commit adultery, but to never even dream about it in your head. And, and one of the things that you really realize when you begin to read what Jesus says here is that that's how I want everybody around me to live. That's how I want them to treat me. And it's what I want to be. How do I do it? Well, as we just begin to look at that, we also remember that that last week Jesus says that that when we take that step, what we discover about Jesus is he he doesn't come just to be a helper, but he comes to be a supernatural king. And when I begin to enter enter a life that's walking with him, there, there are two things that become true of me. I enter into a new relationship, and in that new relationship, I find my identity, It defines who I am. So in one way, in our day when everybody's trying to say, where do I find my identity? Jesus here in the Beatitudes, he's actually saying something like this. You need to now construct your identity to be like me. And that's really what the Beatitudes open up. Because in many ways, what the Beatitudes are is actually a sort of word picture of the Lord Jesus. And he now calls us to follow him in that The other thing he does is he says, I now want you to live life by a different tune. Uh, Not by the way that you've always learned to live life and not by the way everybody else is living life. But what I want you to do is now to live a radically different life that actually turns the world upside down. Now, as we go through that, we saw that last week, but tonight what I want us to do is to go on and to look at the next verse where Jesus opens up and says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, think about that a moment. What are you saying? Those, those aren't normally something we would put together mourning and comfort In in a similar verse over in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, speaking on a a different occasion, Jesus puts it this way. Blessed are those who weep, for they will laugh. What are you talking about, Jesus? John Stott, in his uh, brilliant little commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in the Bible Speak Today series, he says you can almost sum up the words of Jesus like this. Blessed are those who are unhappy... For they will be happy. Now, we live in a world, don't we, that almost assumes that it's my right to have a a pain-free life. That that everything in life should work for me. So, So what is Jesus saying? Well, I want to suggest to you that he's saying at least three things. And we're going to look at this tonight. He's talking about freedom in mourning... Freedom from yourself and freedom through sorrow or through shame. So freedom in mourning, freedom from yourself and freedom in shame. So if you have a Bible open with me, we're going to look at that in Psalm, I'm sorry, in uh, Matthew chapter five and we're going to be digging into verse four. And one of the first things we have to say that uh, verse four says is that Jesus says, We are mourning. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's just very simple. It means exactly what we mean by mourning. It it means to be deeply gripped by by sadness and grief in our heart to to the point that that we feel it down in in our guts, as it were, a, a sadness... But I suppose the real challenge here is, what kind of mourning is Jesus actually referring to? Now, there's lots of options, but I I think Jesus is being very nuanced here. But but let me just sort of recognize what isn't, I think, what Jesus is saying. And first of all, I don't think Jesus is talking about the mourning of those who lose loved ones. Now The Bible talks a lot about that. I, I don't want to suggest it doesn't. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. The Bible says to those who are mourning, if you've lost someone deeply loved, that, and I went through that myself earlier in this year with the loss of my mother, so I I really it's fresh to me, that I think the Bible says two things. If you know they had a a clear faith in the Lord Jesus, they are in his safe hands. To, To be absent from the Lord is to be present with the Lord, or absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But even if they didn't have a clear faith, the Bible would teach they could not be in safer hands than they are right now. Because they would say that even with those who don't have a trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're in the hands of the one who is most wise, who knows everything. The one who is unbelievably merciful and the one who is just in all that he does. And so you know that in His hands, He will only do what is right. And that's our comfort. But equally, I don't think Jesus here is referring either to those who mourn because they're going through suffering and particularly injustice within their own life. Now again, the Bible says a lot about that. For instance, if you go to the latter half of Romans chapter 12, it assures you of two things if you're going through such a situation yourself. Number one, His grace is sufficient. And number two, He will one day bring everything to justice. You don't have to. But He will one day bring all things to justice. So what kind of morning is Jesus talking about? Well, I want to suggest to you that that within the context, I think the mourning here is the mourning of repentance. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 17, as we saw last week, Jesus really summed up his ministry in this way. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near." So so Jesus is almost saying that the the way into this kingdom that he's bringing, this supernatural king, this new kingdom, he said, is through repentance. And I think that really that's what we looked at last week in verse 3 when it said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is, is there laying it out on one side, and now Jesus is flipping the coin and saying, look, repentance always has two sides. One is... A recognition of the poverty of my spirit. And the other one is mourning in my heart. Now, let you think about that. What what does Jesus mean about repentance? Well, Jesus is saying that real repentance always has two things that are true of it. The first one is this, that I have mental currency in that I recognize I've offended God. I, I, I'm guilty, not just horizontally to other people I've offended, but I am ultimately, I, I, I'm guilty to God Himself. David brings that out, I think, very clearly in Psalm 51 when he says in verse 3 I, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, that is God, against you, you only have I sinned and have done what is evil. In your side. Now, that's a fascinating statement from David, because if you know the, the background to that prayer. <clears throat> David basically had had an affair with another man's wife, and the result of that was that she became pregnant. And then David, out of an attempt to sort of hide that, what he had tried to do is manipulate the man, because David had the power of a king, and he tried to encourage him to try to go back to his wife so that The man might think that it was his child. When that didn't work, David used a power play to to put that man in a dangerous situation which he knew would lead to his death. And that's what happened. So so David here in this psalm, he's recognizing that horizontally, he has grossly sinned. In every imaginable way, abuse of power, taking advantage, all of that. But, but David here, he recognizes that, look, even when I've recognized everything I've done horizontally, that's nothing compared to the reality, reality vertically. And here he says, look, every one of these actions in the end, what's most significant at the base of this is that I have defied you who created me. And lived in an absolutely rebellious way to you first. I I think that's got to be at least the beginning of repentance. It's recognition that that I have directly rebelled against God. But I think what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 is he flips the coin on the other side. And he's saying to us that, look, real repentance is not only mental currency, but it's also emotional currency. It's never enough simply to say, I am guilty. But Jesus says real repentance also feels its guilt. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And James, in James chapter 4, verse 9, he he brings this out very powerfully, uh, talking into a situation where there were all kinds of conflicts that people were having with one another. And James wants to identify those conflicts primarily because of wrong motives that that people wanted to use the situation to their advantage for their own pleasures. And then James, as he confronts that, he says this in verse 9. He says, grieve, mourn, wail. <clears throat> just notice, all, all those are emotional words. He's saying, deeply feel the reality of what you have done. Change your laughter in the morning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, true repentance is never just words, but it's a heart recognition that I am guilty. And so Jesus here, I think in verses 3 and 4, he's saying, look, real repentance always has those two sides. There's an interesting account in the life of Jesus where uh, he went to a dinner party that was called by a Pharisee who really was trying to catch Jesus out. And he goes to that dinner party, and Jesus is sitting there with everybody else, and they're, they're all having dinner, and this woman comes in. Probably she was a prostitute who had come to put her faith in Christ and turn her life around. And she comes into Jesus' feet, and she just is weeping all over his feet. And, and then she, she takes her hair, and, and she begins to dry it from all her tears. And the Pharisee sitting next to it, he, he just his mind is going crazy. Doesn't Jesus know what kind of woman this is? We we all know her. She has a reputation. Doesn't Jesus understand? And, And Jesus turned to him and he said, look, those who are forgiven little, love little. But those who are forgiven much, love much. You see, her tears were not tears of sorrow. They were tears of joy because she had recognized the depth in her heart of her sin against God. Now, I just say that because, you know, sometimes in a church that joys and delights in preaching the gospel and grace, sometimes we miss feeling our guilt. And, and I just want to throw out there, is it, is it possible that some of us feel so little the wonder and the comfort of being forgiven because actually we've never really felt the depth of our sin? That it's just words. And not that I've actually, in my heart, felt my sin. Jesus is saying here, look, there is freedom in mourning. Because blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted as they bring that before the Lord. The second thing I think we find here is that Jesus also shows here that... Can you move that along the next one for me? That Jesus also shows here that there is freedom from myself. Now, now, what do I mean by that? Well, look, I, I don't think I'm far off when I say that the, the modern view of man is it's all right to be a bit bad just as long as you're not too bad, okay? <clears throat> in, in fact, have you noticed how in, in all the films, all the heroes have to be bad? The, the, you, you don't want a hero that's not bad. You want a hero that's, that's got problems. So, so even the mighty Thor in Marvel Endgame is a drunk. You've got to have bad, and that's the modern view of humanity. In fact, you know, the, in, in that picture up there, as long as you're not on the right, <coughs> All right, that my right? Yeah, I think that's your right. As long as you're not on the right and really bad, that's okay, because if you're really bad, if you're a Putin or, or somebody like that, you're really bad, and that's not right. But you don't want to be the person on the left who doesn't really have a lot of bad, because who trusts somebody like that nowadays? So, so the modern concept is, look, as long as you're not too bad, you can be bad. And that is normal. Uh, Jess Lair, who wrote a, a, a help, self-help book and one of the recognized of the, the better self-help books by many, uh, she called it uh, some years ago, she called it this, I ain't much, baby, but I'm all I've got. And and in there, what she's really, it's it's, it's saying that, look, okay, you just accept you're broken, accept you're bad in places, that's all right, and, you know, just accept that they're bad and there's good in everybody, and and just go out and live that in peace. Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, he he sums up that, that whole sort of book. He sums it up this way, I own me. And and even though I didn't create me, I own me. And I have the right over my own life. I can call my own shots. I have the right to love as I see fit. Or in other words, I am my own God. And I am the center of my life and myself. Now, one of the things that repentance does, coming into Jesus' new kingdom, is it delivers you from yourself. And really what we find there is what uh, Jesus is teaching here is that that my problems are far bigger than I think. That the, the, the issues in my life, they're not just environmental, they're not just the family I grew up in, how awful that was, they're not just psychological or physiological, they're not just gender-based, they're not racism. All those things are terrible problems. And all those things, the gospel would encourage us that we need to oppose and address. But Jesus wants to say, your actual problem is far deeper than that, far bigger. It's sin in your heart. That's your real problem. Jeremiah brings this out in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. He says this. The heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure, who can understand it? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? The first thing he says there is this. Your heart deceives you. You may say, I feel right. I feel this is right. Jeremiah is saying, that isn't make it right. And, and not only is it just simply that it des- deceives you, but, but actually it's beyond cure. We, we sit there and think, <clears throat> you know, if I, if I educate myself, if, if I get in the right society, if I get the right friends, that, that will cure the problem and then I'll be who I ought to be. Jeremiah said, no. The, the, the pollution in your heart is so pervasive that it affects how you think, How you choose things, how you view things, everything about your life, it it affects and pollutes. And what's interesting is that Jeremiah was writing this in a situation when the the city of Jerusalem, at least, was surrounded by an army that was going to destroy it. There were all kinds of sociological, environmental, physiological problems. People were starving because they didn't have enough food. And, And yet in that situation, Jeremiah wants to say, even though that's all true... Actually, your problem is far worse. That your heart is deceitfully polluted. Uh, just to just sort of bring that out there, uh, biblically, what the heart means is basically, if you think about it in the terms of a computer, it's the, the operating system within my life. That's really what the heart is. It makes my choices, how I think, how I view people, directions I go. That's what the heart is. So, so you say, well, wait a minute. okay. <laughs> If if, if, if if my problem is that bad, that, that even my thinking, my choosing, my delights, my wrong, everything is, is deceived, how in the world can there ever be hope? And I think that's what Jesus is bringing out here. He's saying, look, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who mourn, I think here, is partly that they recognize that the problem in their life is far bigger than they thought it was. If you have your Bible, turn with me over to uh, Isaiah chapter 6, because I think Isaiah chapter 6 is in in a helpful way. It it helps us really to understand that. And and here's Isaiah, who is a, a godly young man, training for the ministry, probably at the point of his ordination, somewhere around the age of 30. And, and he's a man of outstanding morality, a man of outstanding good that, that I have no doubt that people were going to and others were saying, look, you want to follow him, you want to be like him. And, and here in Isaiah chapter 6, as we had read earlier, suddenly he, he sees the reality of God. He sees the utter purity of God. He sees the utter holiness of God. He sees the undiluted reality. And notice in verse 5 what his very first response is. Woe to me, I am ruined. Woe to me, I am ruined. It's interesting, that that word ruined, it, it means to be disassembled. It means to be, to be, be taken apart. Uh, earlier this year, I, was, uh, I met a, a, a man who, for his downtime, how, how he had downtime, he used to build these massive monument Lego models that are around today. In fact, he had this room, he's a single man, and he has this room, and he has in there one room, he has all these huge models on display cases in the room, and he was telling me about and showing me about the the one of his his prize models was the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. That has, get this, 7,541 pieces. <laughs> Can you imagine getting that box and opening it up, pouring it on the ground? <laughs> what? How do I put that together? You know, he spent months putting that together. And, and then putting it on display. And the, the picture here with Isaiah is, is, imagine that he was standing there one day and somebody came and disassembled every single piece and threw them on the ground. That's what Isaiah is saying. I'm, I'm disassembled. I'm, I'm coming apart. All, all that I thought was right, all, all that I, I, I assumed was good, it's 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 falling apart. When I recognize the reality of God. But the story doesn't end there for Isaiah. Because notice that it goes on in in verses 6 to 9. And and what happens is one of the seraphim. These are sort of the the honor guard around the throne of God. He goes over to the coal. Probably this is a a picture of a a coal on the altar. Almost a picture of a divine altar before God. And, And the altar would have been the place where the sacrifices were uh Executed, and the blood was poured on the altar, and then they were burned up as a, an offering for sin. And as the seraphim takes that coal, he takes that coal and he, he puts it on the lips of Isaiah. You can imagine the, the searing pain. But the pain turns into cleansing from his stain. And, and I think actually that what we're looking at here is that this is the, the application of what Jesus would do on the cross of Calvary, when he would present his blood as the ultimate sacrifice. And and what we see here is is Jesus retroactively backdating that into the life of Isaiah. And if that's applied to the life of Isaiah, suddenly Isaiah's guilt and sin is removed as a cold touches him. As he feels the pain of his sin and shame, He's suddenly restored. And, and notice what happens. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, that as that happens, you know, here he is. He he disassembled on the ground. You know, I, I am undone. I can't even raise my head because I see the reality. So he's on the ground. The coal touches him. Suddenly he's released. And God says in verse 9, or in verse 8, Who shall I send? Who will go for me? And notice what happens. He stands up. I here I am, I will send. Go, send me. Notice what happened as he's experienced the work of that redemption through the altar, that his absolute shame that crushed him is released into confidence to face anything. Freedom from myself. Freedom from my sin. Freedom from the power, twisting, corrupting, misleading my life. Suddenly, as i set that aside, I have confidence to face anything. Finally, Jesus brings us freedom from our shame. Now, if you go back there to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, we we read those verses. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted in... We're left with this question. How can I ever be comforted? How can ever the, the, the reality, as I begin to understand my own shame, how can it ever be turned to laughter? How, do, how can that ever happen? Isn't it Jesus being a little bit unrealistic In this command. Some call it a worm theology. To to actually, you know, recognize my poverty of spirit. To recognize the depth of the stain of sin upon my life. It's just going to lead me to a life that's crushed by shame. Well, I think the answer is, yes, it will. If it were not for the fact of Jesus that Jesus can turn my shame into laughter. I was thinking about that earlier this week, and I was just meditating on and thinking about that moment Jesus was on the cross. It's fascinating, isn't it, that before Jesus went to the cross of Calvary where He died, the night before He prayed, Father, take this cup from me, but nevertheless your will be done for me. I I want you to just recognize what Jesus is saying. He had the ability to walk away. He, He had the choice to not go to the cross. But he chose nevertheless your will be done. And it was there on the cross that Jesus at that moment when the darkest hour comes, he says, Eli Eli my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and and there in a way that we cannot understand. Jesus so identified with all those who would come to him. That he put on my sewage, drenched reality of my shame. And he wrapped himself in it. To such a unique way that the father as he looked upon Jesus at that moment. He slammed his door in Jesus' face as it were. I will not have That. And he did it for me. That my guilt, the unbearable shame of my guilt, he bore on the cross for me. And when you see that, you realize. He's cleansed my guilt. He's removed my stain. And you know what? So many of us, don't we? We live in fear of our shame being revealed. We live in fear for making it be made public. And we think, you know, the worst thing in the world, is if anyone knew this, what would I do? But, you know, when you put your trust in Christ, you know this. That the ultimate one who really matters, the only one who really matters above everything else, when everything else is said and done, the ultimate one who really matters, he looks on you and he says, You're cleansed. Your shame is no more. I will never raise it. And you know, when you know that in your heart, You're liberated from your shame, aren't you? Because you think, well, maybe other people will find out. But it doesn't matter. Because the one who really matters has already said, you're clean. It'll hurt. But it will never destroy. Because Jesus has taken all that shame away upon the cross for me. And you know, friends, when you realize that, your tears turn to laughter. Your mourning turns to comfort. Because you know he accepts you without reservation. Let's pray. Most gracious and merciful Lord, we wonder at the magnitude of your grace. And we ask that you may help us to feel deep in our hearts that liberation. Liberation through mourning. Liberation from our own hearts. And ultimately that you bore our shame that we will never ultimately be crushed by it. Because you were crushed for us. Upon the cross. And we ask if there's anyone here tonight. That that hasn't come to enter into the new supernatural kingdom upside down. That you'll help them. Even as we've been learning within your word. To step back and to recognize their guilt. I am guilty. And even to feel their guilt. And bring that to you. And to find their comfort. We ask this in your most precious name. Amen.